0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter number 14. Revelation chapter number 14. Last Sunday, Pastor Stephen, our choir, and our gifted musicians led us in the singing of a rendition of Victory in Jesus. We used to sing that song a lot in the country church where I was baptized and became a member as a new believer there are some rural churches, small churches, country churches like ours where the song set for Sunday is determined not so much by what one might feel moved to sing on a given day, led by the Lord in some spiritual way to select for worship, what your instrumentalist had the ability to play. And so often you can return to the same songs again and again and again, and for us, victory in Jesus was among those hymns we return to often. As a fairly new believer, I ambled across a little verse from 2 Corinthians where Paul exhorts the church that we are to bring every thought captive to obedience to Christ. That our every thought is to be focused on the things of God, the things of heaven, the gift of the gospel through Jesus by faith and repentance. Coming from a culture where the music, the movies, the television show, the cultural references, the conversation has been marked by vulgarity, cursings, immorality, and various other forms. It can be a difficult thing to bring every thought captive to obedience to Christ. Think of how many times throughout the course of your day as a believer you find yourself humming, singing, openly or internally the songs from last week's service, something that moved you that morning on the way to work. Music is just a part of our life. It's a part of our cycle of thinking far more often than we realize. And I would find myself at work, at school, just hanging around. The thoughts that would come through my mind were of everything I had been exposed to, the cultural references, the movies, the music, the television shows so my coping mechanism, my tool for bringing every thought captive to obedience to Christ was victory in Jesus. When I'd find myself turning over in my heart and mind those old songs, those old cultural references, the thoughts of things that had been done in my past, I would begin to rehearse the lyrics of that great hymn. How I'd heard an old, old story how a Savior came from glory, how He sought me and He bought me with His redeeming blood. That became my way of centering myself again in the gospel in the throes of whatever activity I found myself on a given day. Victory in Jesus was the first concept, the first doctrine. I remember acknowledging as true and relishing with any degree of depth. First theological principle I ever understood is that there is victory in Jesus. This morning, if you are a fan of victory in Jesus, Revelation chapter 14 is for you. Would you join me in standing as we read together Revelation 14, beginning in verse number one. <clears throat> the Bible says here that I looked, and there on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. With him were one hundred and forty-four thousand who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. Sound I heard was also like harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. But no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones not defiled with women, for they've kept their virginity. These are the ones who followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from the human race as the first fruits for God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. And I saw another angel flying high overhead, having the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. A second angel followed saying, it has fallen Babylon, the Great has fallen, who made all nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. The third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is mixed full strength in the cup of his anger. He'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the lamb. The smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or anyone who receives the mark of his name. This demands the perseverance of the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, the dead who die in the Lord from now on are blessed. Yes, says the spirit, let them rest from their labors for their works follow them. And I looked and there was a white cloud and one like the son of man was seated on the cloud with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the sanctuary, crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the time to reap has come, since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel, who had also a sharp sickle, came out of the sanctuary in heaven. Yet another angel, who had authority over fire, came from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vineyard, because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle toward the earth and gathered the grapes from the earth's vineyard, and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press up to the horses' bridles for about 180 miles. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Verses one through five, it's a powerful statement of the victory we have in Christ, the victory he has secured for us. Look back to verse one. I looked and there on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. There is coming a day, figuratively or literally, figurative only in the sense of may not be Mount Zion that we see him, literal in the sense that he will put his feet on this earth. Jesus is coming again. John said, I looked and there he was. There was one like the Son of Man, brazen feet on Mount Zion. I looked and there was Jesus. I looked and there beheld him in resurrection glory. I looked and there on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. There are two strains of symbolism in verse one. There is the language of the 144,000, which we've seen before. And there's the language of his name and the name of the father written on the foreheads of his subjects. Now this is often looked over, missed, unnoticed, Because of the break between the chapters. Go back to verse 16 of chapter 13 just quickly. This is with regards to the beast. The Bible says he requires everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. One who is understanding must calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of man his number is 666. This is the point of contrast between the symbolic taking of the mark of the beast and the symbolic taking of the mark of our Savior, Jesus. That's the contrast. You have one of two ways to identify this identification crazed culture in which we are in. There are but two identities that make any eternal difference. You will either identify with Christ you will consequently identify with the beast. You will either know heaven by virtue of your identification with Jesus, or you will bear with the eternal suffering of hell as a result of your identification with the beast. These are the only two potential outcomes for our lives. Here the contrast is drawn between the beast mark and the mark of the lamb. I do find it somewhat interesting that those who would take a a very literal, overly literal understanding of this beast mark never do the same with the mark of the lamb. I've yet to see the major motion picture or read the series of novels that features Jesus going around writing his name on the foreheads of those who have believed on him. Perhaps that's a conversation for another day. The other line of symbolism that's reflected in our passage is the number of 144,000. We've mentioned in weeks past how this balance, this symmetry exists within the book of Revelation. The use of 144,000 here attests to that. Back in Revelation chapter seven, there were the initial 144,000. If you don't remember Revelation chapter seven, we'll not quiz you on that after the service, but I'll give you a brief summary. Chapter six ended with that big question, great day of the wrath of God has come, who is able to stand? The answer is in chapter seven, the 144,000, which stands to symbolize in that chapter, all of the people of God, past and present and future, who entrust their soul to the salvation afforded us in Jesus Christ. All of the people of God have found a place of safety within the body of Christ, behind the blood of the lamb, we are kept from, we are safe from the wrath of God that is to come. Although all of the people of God are indirectly referenced in Revelation 14, within the 144,000, the most direct reference is to those who have been martyred for their faith. To put it in summary form, The 144,000 in Revelation seven are all who die in Christ. But the 144,000 in Revelation 14 are all who die for Christ, who are martyred for their faith in Jesus. And they, every martyr is given pride of position in the kingdom of heaven. There is unique special status a sign to those who have died specifically for their confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, who would not relent, who would not defect, who would not recant the message of the gospel at the tip of the spear, who would stand steadfast, who would love not their lives unto death. They now stand with Jesus upon his return in the victory he secured through the cross and resurrection. This idea of, mark of Jesus and the mark of the beast as 666 I find I find moving this story is embarrassing on some level but it's it's worth telling as it lends force to what the passage itself is is saying I, I was saved in 2001 in a car accident I had heard the gospel a couple of weeks prior to that in fact almost three weeks prior to that I had heard the gospel in a Sunday evening service and I believed it, but I did not want my life to be changed on that day. In fact, I felt I had the game rigged. I now know what it takes to get to heaven. Once I have enjoyed what I believed then to be the best of this life, I would circle back to that message which would conveniently save me from the judgment of God which was to come. Now that may sound silly, but that is exactly the thought I had standing and grasping the back of that pew in that Sunday evening service. The following Sunday would have been three weeks. It was a Friday. When driving at an extremely high rate of speed, I hit a 1988 Chevrolet Blazer just behind the passenger side door and laid it open. Everything about that event was frightening to me. I knew that it would happen in the seconds leading up to that. I could see them beginning to turn across my lane. I was traveling at far too high a rate of speed to even give thought to the possibility of turning or slowing down or stopping to give them room to clear the lane that I was driving in. The accident happened. From where my car stopped, I could see back to where the blazer was. One side laid open, two empty child seats in the back seat near the area where I had made contact with that car. I learned later, thank God, that there were no children actually in that car, but I didn't learn that until arriving at the hospital, and that of all things scared me the most. In the old airbags when they would deploy I don't know if this is the case anymore has been experienced by many others but if you wear contact lenses when those old airbags would deploy the powder from that explosion the packaging those bags are in would stick to contact lenses and you'd have a few seconds of blindness I had looked myself over enough to know that my femur was badly broken knew enough to know that that was the strongest bone in your body, and it concerned me that if that bone was broken, what had happened internally? I had pushed the steering wheel through the windshield of that car, I was going blind. In my driver's side window was a woman telling me that I had killed someone. In my passenger side window was my best friend who was afraid he would watch his friend die and who was afraid of the legal consequences of the decisions we had been involved in making in the lead up to that accident. I could not hear the voices of that woman in the driver's side window and the voice of my friend sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher. I just couldn't figure out why it was that I could not hear what was going on around me. My eyes were dimming, my hearing appeared to be going, my body was broken in many pieces and I was frankly scared to death. I had asked the Lord in the simplest, most infantile terms in the milliseconds that led up to that accident, God help me. And do you know he answered that prayer? I realized within moments trying to hear my friend that the reason I couldn't hear in that accident was because my radio was wide open. Seems like the kind of thing that you would know, but in the throes of all that was going on, you just know that you can't make out sounds. Those of you who are of my generation might appreciate this reference. Others might not understand what I'm talking about at all, but there'll be many Memphians who will get it. In the late 90s and early 2000s, the Memphis rap group 3-6 3-6 Mafia was what everyone listened to. Still around, as I understand, although I'm not as culturally adept as I once was in my younger, cooler days. And that was what was playing on the radio. As loud as my radio would play it. 666 six, six Mafia was the soundtrack of my salvation experience. And, and the reason that can happen. The reason that can happen is because of the principle that's being taught in verses one through five of our passage, that the mark simply does not take, the mark of the beast simply does not take where the seal of the father has been applied. There is victory in Jesus that has the power to overcome the darkness of hell The light of the gospel cast it out. There is power in the Lord Jesus Christ that we would be rescued from the muck and the mire of our own sin and the dreadful consequences of those sin. The mark simply doesn't take where the seal of Jesus has been applied. That's the message of these verses. That in spite of the power of the beast, the enigma, the mystery of this mark, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's where the focus, that's where the attention ought to be settled. People fixate and focus on this mark business, this number business. It's it's like being drawn to the dateline covering of the murder, right? Watch the whole world wrapped up in this Murdoch business. There's something about the darkness and, and sinister nature of evil, wicked, death, murder, sin, that, that has this magnetism on humanity. But the highlight of our passage, the highlight of our book, is not the beast or his minions, but the power and the victory of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, by faith in Jesus, the victory is ours. It says in verse two, I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder, the sound I heard was like harpists playing their harps, sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, but no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth, sang the song of redemption, song that only the redeemed can know, is it, only they can learn it, Only we by faith in Christ can know it. Only the redeemed can know the full sense of redemption. Only the redeemed can know the full power of Christ's salvation. Only the redeemed can know the redemption song. Verse four tells us that these are the ones not defiled with women, for they've kept their virginity. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. The idea of their not having defiled themselves with women having kept their virginity is not a literal reference. It's not that these, these were eunuchs by practice, celibate, all of their life. This is the, the spiritual adultery imagery of the Old Testament, where adultery becomes the metaphor for spiritual unfaithfulness. These who have kept themselves chaste are those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They don't step to the, to the right, they don't step to the left. They remain steadfast and faithful following the lamb as he leads the way. They were redeemed from the human race as the first fruits for God and the lamb. The martyrs go ahead. Those who die for Christ, go ahead of those who die in Christ. Pride of position is enjoyed by those who lose their lives, for the advancement of the gospel. Think of that, think of that, think of that. There, there, is, there is pride of place enjoyed by all who have laid down their life for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful reality. Verse five tells us no lie was found in their mouths, they're blameless. This is back to the war of words stuff. The battle that's being fought in the book of Revelation is is a a war of messaging, a war of words. Message of the empire, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is son of the gods versus the message of the gospel, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the only begotten son of God. These would not recant their faith. These would not turn to the left nor to the right. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless faithful unto death there is for them listen this is powerful because the perception of the empire and often our perception would be to say these people have lost they're dead they are dead they lost game over they are the loser but what we learn in the passage is That not only have they secured the victory in the general sense that we have secured victory with Jesus by faith, but that they now all the more enjoy pride of position because they gave their lives for the advancement of the gospel and the truth of their confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Then judgment comes, verse six. I saw another angel flying high overhead having the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Charge of this first angel is to preach the gospel over the world. Simply herald the message that God has loved the world so much that he gave his only son, that Jesus would be clothed in flesh, that he would walk in the midst of a people he sought to redeem, that he would fulfill every expectation of God, the righteous requirement of God's word would be fulfilled in perfection in the life of Jesus, the only begotten son of God. Jesus would bear our sin in himself, that the one who knew no sin would become sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God, that he would become the scapegoat for our sin. Bearing the indignity of our immorality, Jesus would bear our sin outside the camp, bleed and die in our place, be raised again on the third day. It's a message of hope, salvation for those who believe. But for those who would quench the work of God's Holy Spirit, rejecting Jesus as the Son of God out of hand, it is a message of great judgment. Verse seven, the Bible says he spoke with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. So this is kind of a basic description. God described here as maker of heaven and earth, the sea and springs and water. But think, think of how often These references to God as creator have occurred in the book of Revelation and begin to mark them in your mind as we continue in our study of Revelation. This is not where you would expect to find creation doctrine. You expect to find creation stuff at the other end of the Bible in the book of Genesis where the creation account is provided for us. But it's as though something is being suggested by these constant references to God as creator or to some dimension of creation itself. It is as though we're being brought back to the beginning. It is as though just as we began in the Garden of Eden, so we'll now prepare to end in the Garden of God. That through the work of Jesus at the cross and in the power of his resurrection, what unfolded in the Garden of Eden is being undone, restored, and resurrected in the Garden of God. The curse that Adam incurred would be reversed through the power of the gospel, the fellowship that was lost by virtue of Adam's sin. We'd be reconciled in the garden of God, which is to come. The Bible begins in the garden of Eden. It ends in the garden of God. But there's more to this concept, more to the idea of creation than just the unfolding of this pattern or the reversing of the curse of the garden. It is that creation itself remains incomplete apart from the work of redemption. You read the book of Genesis And it feels like creation's happening, creation's happening, creation stops. Then we have this long era of sinfulness. We get to the gospel in the New Testament. Then we have this long era of tribulation. Then we get back to the garden. The reality is that for God, creation has never ceased. And it will not be brought to completion until he has brought his people home to the garden of God. Second angel follows in verse eight. It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen, who has made all nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality. Babylon here is a reference to the Roman Empire, maybe more specifically to the city of Rome. The Babylonian Empire in the Old Testament is the arch enemy of the people of Israel in the latter part of the Old Testament. The city of Babylon was the the source of The Babylonian Empire's rule, it was her capital, Babylon becomes the symbol for all things opposing the work and will of God, and even the people of God. It's a reference here to Rome, for obvious reasons. If you're passing the book of Revelation, if you're passing letters in the Roman Empire, and you don't want to get your head cut off or be thrown to the lions, then you don't say bad things in writing about the Roman Empire. You create code for yourself in order to be able to say what needs to be said in this instance Babylon the Great is the designation for the Roman Empire she is celebrated here as having fallen the one who made all nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality you know, I, I want to say this this will be a little bit controversial and I, I want you to commit it to memory and wrestle with it and if you got real beef with it then we can have a conversation The book of Revelation and the New Testament are very anti-establishment. In other words, there is a consistent pushing back against the culture of its day and specifically the the governance of the Roman Empire. Y'all tracking with me? We as followers of Jesus have in some way been called upon under the authority of Jesus, to live as countercultural revolutionaries in a land that is not our own. That is who we are. Now, this becomes important in a variety of different ways. But in recent days, there's an added element of relevance to this whole notion. There's lots of conversation in the last couple of years about the idea, the concept of Christian nationalism. Now, I was born at night, but it wasn't last night, so I'm wise enough to know that some of this conversation about Christian nationalism is no more than an effort at shoehorning Christians into a collective group who are easier to criticize. I get all of that. But I also see indicators within Christendom in America seems to be an inclination toward identifying ourselves with people and institutions who are themselves worldly in their ways. We ought to be, we ought to be, listen, we ought to be counter-cultural revolutionaries pushing back against the tide of the culture. To some extent, with careful definition, anti-establishment in our actions and our attitudes. But that does not suggest that we align ourselves with other worldly institutions who may have some points of agreement with us simply because it serves us well in opposing those we regard as enemies. We have pledged our allegiance to Christ and to Christ alone. We are pilgrims and strangers and sojourners in a world that is not our home. Now listen, I'm as conservative as anybody can humanly be. But I hear more and more and more people under the guise of conservatism pairing themselves together with institutions and establishments with worldly agendas for no more reason than that the two parties share a common enemy. We are not the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians, strange bedfellows in this culture fight. That is not who we are. We are the people of God and we have pledged our exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ, who is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And although I don't think this is the most pressing issue in America today, you had better rest assured, it is an issue which exists within the body of Christ, one we must guard against with due diligence. I saw, literally, I saw this week, an advertisement for a pastor's conference that featured an atheist speaker because he identifies himself as politically conservative. Brothers and sisters, political conservatism is not the same as theological conservatism. And a political conservatism that does not have as its foundation a robust understanding of biblical values is a a political conservatism that will not stand. Atheistic conservatism is not a friend of the church. We are countercultural revolutionaries having pledged our allegiance to Jesus who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We are pilgrims and sojourners. Our home is not here. There's a third angel. Are you glad to move on from that? There's a third angel f- which followed them spoke with a loud voice. if Anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is mixed full strength in the cup of his anger. He'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the lamb. The smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or anyone who receives the mark of his name. Judgment is coming. This will be the fate of those who have received the mark. Did you notice the way in verse 10 the judgment is described? He will drink the wine of God's wrath mixed full strength in the cup of his anger. We must resist the temptation in reading passages like Revelation 14 to assign all of the judgment of God to the very end. We say things like, God is going to get you. One day there's gonna be judgment. One day you're gonna get what's coming to you. Those things are true. There is truth and the reality that one day a full and final judgment will be passed by the Father. Make no mistake, God is not waiting until the last day to actively initiate his judgment against sin. She's described in verse eight as having made the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality. She's described in judgment in verse 10 as having to drink the wine of God's wrath. God is actively ensuring that she gets what she has been giving. Paul explains it this way. He calls it the law of sowing and reaping you will reap even as you sow. You don't have to wait until the day of judgment to receive the wrath of God against your sin. He has written it into the constitution of the cosmos that even as you sin, his judgment is brought against you without his ever moving a muscle. God is actively opposing the proud, actively bringing under judgment sin, actively opposing those who would oppose his will. You may go unseen. You may go unscathed for a season. but Make no mistake, your sin will find you out. Trey and I were discussing before we came out, he was filling me in the Netflix docu-series on this Alec Murdoch case. I don't know all the details. I don't care about all the details, frankly, but I know enough to know that here is featured a brother who seems to have used money and power over many years and a great deal of influence to go under the radar, unscathed by the judicial process, Buying his way through one scheme to another, to another, to another with a wake of bodies in his path. Dear brothers, make no mistake. I don't care how much money you got. I don't care how clever or deceitful you are, how much power or influence you believe you have. One of these days, your sin will find you out. Here it's brought to judgment. God is giving Rome what she has been giving. She's been doling out in the cup full the wine of her sexual immorality. Now she'll choke on a full strength cup of the wine of God's great wrath against her sin. This is the fate of those who take the mark. Now look to verse 12. This demands the perseverance of the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. I won't won't take long here, but I wanna read you another verse. You tell me if this sounds familiar. In chapter thirteen, verse ten. This demands the perseverance and faith of the saints. Sound familiar? Yeah. Now here's something that I want to I want to recommend you give some time and thought to. In chapter thirteen, just before that statement, this demands the perseverance and faith of the saints. The Bible says, "If anyone is destined for captivity, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed." It's a hard predetermined fate that is foretold for those who will suffer persecution. Then in chapter 14, the passage says, there is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or anyone who receives the mark of his name. This demands the perseverance and faith of the saints. I'll just put this as as plainly as I can. This would be a little much for some, but bear with it. Here are two passages that speak in very predestinarian terms of the faith of the church and the fate of those who oppose the church. And in both instances, it's followed by a call to faith and perseverance on the part of the church. If you think that the sovereignty of God over all of your life and over every life is opposed to your laboring in faith, you have misunderstood the nature of his lordship over your life. Verse 13, the Bible says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, the dead who die in the Lord from now on are blessed. Yes, says the Spirit, let them rest from their labors for their works follow them. It is a blessed thing, often a painful thing, but a blessed thing to observe passing from life to death and in unseeable ways with these eyes of sight from life to eternal life For those who know Jesus as the savior of their life. Verse 14, the Bible says, I looked and there was a white cloud. One like the son of man was seated on the cloud with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the sanctuary crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud. Use your sickle and reap for the time to reap has come since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth Harvested. Another angel who also had a sharp sickle came out of the sanctuary in heaven. Yet another angel who had authority over fire came from the altar and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vineyard because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle toward the earth and gathered the grapes from the earth's vineyard and threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath. The press was trampled outside the city and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. John seems to be using here a reference from Joel 3.13 that speaks of the sickle and the harvesting, the the, the harvest of judgment that unfolds as God moves against enemy nations. The the idea here is the same as reflected in Matthew twenty four when he speaks of a moment in time when after the tribulation, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in great glory and in great power. Later in that chapter, he cites an example explaining how this will unfold. As in the days of Noah, there are two grinding at the, the wheel. There are two working in the field. One is carried away and the other is left behind. It's context, according to its Framework, The composition of that passage suggests that the one that's carried away is being carried away in judgment. The the sickle of judgment, the harvest of judgment is unfolding, and they are being swept away in a torment of judgment. I, I don't understand the reference to 180 miles that closes our passage, and I don't know that anyone else really does either, but I can get the meaning of the imagery, blood flowing out of the press, up to the horse's bridle for many, many miles. This is a gruesome, grotesque act of judgment that God brings against those who have rejected the mark of the Savior. It's a lot of blood. That's a lot of death. There are probably a good many who don't understand the wine press imagery. We don't have a a winery in our neck of the woods, at least not that I'm aware of that where my wife's grandfather lives in North Georgia less than a mile down the road there was there's there still is a big winery and you could go and you could watch the processes they had vineyards on site and you could see them take the wine through its processes they would put the grapes in this wine press and then people take off their socks and shoes and walk. that's nasty y'all so you good Baptists think about that the next time you're tempted to have a glass of wine. Somebody's old stinky feet been in that glass of wine. They would walk around on those grapes and they would press them down until all of the juice from those grapes would be pressed through the cracks in the wine press and gathered up in order to be fermented and to create the wine that was produced at that particular winery, or any winery for that matter, that's kind of the basic process, right? And the imagery here is of God gathering the unrighteous of the world, putting them into the winepress of his wrath, and the Son of Man with bronze burnished feet Trampling down the winepress until the blood that flows forth from that vat is so deep that it courses forth from that winepress 180 miles up to the bridle of a horse. This is a gruesome picture. Some of you may find distasteful or upsetting in some way. You should dispel any notion of a universal experience of salvation. You think about the South as the bastion of theological conservatism, but I have experienced over the course of time that there is this creeping, cancerous, insidious universalism that has made its way even into the Bible Belt South. How many times have you stood around and heard people say of this one or that one? No relationship whatsoever with Jesus. Well, his or her suffering is over now. He's in a better place. Randy and I watch these crime shows. It never fails. Some gangster gets mowed down in retaliation for last week's drive-by shooting. They stand around the chalk outline of his body. He's in a better place. And I want to say, no, no, he ain't. He sure ain't. And and, and as hard, as callous as it might sound, you want to say his or her suffering has only now begun. And if you don't repent of your sin and run to Jesus for salvation, there'll come a day when you breathe your last and your suffering will begin in ways that are exponentially more than anything you'll ever experience in this life. When Brandy and I married, she was an aide and I was the chaplain for a hospice. That marked the beginning of hundreds, and I mean hundreds, of experiences of being at the bedside of believers and unbelievers alike. You watch the breath of life leave their body. For those in the faith, you rejoice in that heaven is their home. And their suffering has been brought to an end. But for so many, there is simply No hope. Listen to me. Not everyone you know is going to heaven when they die. Not everyone in Hernando, God knows, is going to heaven when they die. Not everyone in DeSoto County is going to heaven when they die. In fact, Jesus makes this pretty clear. More of the people you know will go to hell than the people that go to heaven. There's a broad way that leads to destruction, and there are many who find it. There is a straight a narrow that leads to life, and there are few that go thereby. There are but two destinies for man, woman, and child, the promise of heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ and the punishment of hell as a result of our sin. I want to say this with some kind of glib delight. And frankly, I have a problem with preachers. The, the subject of every sermon is hell, and they seem to be terribly happy about that subject matter. But I think for some people, this was certainly true of me, but before our hearts can ever be truly touched by the magnificence of what God has done for us and his son Jesus, before we can behold his immeasurable beauty, there has to be the quickening that comes The softening of our heart that comes with the realization that apart from some divine intervention, we are bound from hell and on the cusp of receiving the the cup, the full cup, the full strength cup of God's wrath against us. There are some of you here even today over whom the cup of God's wrath looms and it looms large you've allowed yourself to go with the tide, the flow of culture, assuming that you're bound for better places an end to suffering, a sweet by and by with no real appreciation whatsoever for what God has done for you and his son, Jesus. I'll just, I'll say it as plainly as I know how to say it. If you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus, if there has never been a moment in time in your life when you confessed your sin to God and asked that Jesus would save you, a moment that changed your life from that point forward. If there has never been a moment of new birth in your life, you are bound for a sinner's hell and only, only Jesus can change that destiny. Only Jesus can do it. The good news of the gospel is that today is the day of salvation. There's the hope of heaven foolish kids like me, or stubborn folks like you. I went years without sharing my testimony with anyone because I felt like I probably did not do a good job at minimizing the place that sin had in my life. Like if you're a if you're a punk kid like I was that was involved in everything, you begin to get the impression that people are leaning in with enthusiasm at the junk you did more enthusiastically than the power of what God has done in saving you through the gospel. The the fear there for me and the fear there, frankly, for you this morning is that there are far more who die in their self-righteousness than those who die in drug addiction and debauchery. It's easy for the down and out to see their need, but the up and out. The Pharisee often has a hard time to see his desperate need. There may be in this congregation some Sunday school attenders, some church attenders, some folks who've been baptized and attended church for all of their life, but have never truly encountered the power of the gospel, have never genuinely repented of their sin and entrusted their soul to Jesus. And hell is as hot for the Pharisee as it is for the sinner and the tax collector. Come to him, come to him, come. Only Jesus, only Jesus, only Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for the time you've given us together to consider the truth of the gospel, the victory that we have in Jesus. God grant that we might by faith in the only begotten son of God stand with the lamb on that great day.